Hello, welcome to a very special episode of the Richmond Bigfooty Tiger Cast. Tonight I'm joined by a, a very special guest. He played 156 games, kicked 61 goals, was drafted at number 53 in the 2003 draft, and he wore the number 23. Daniel Jackson, welcome to the show. G'day, Chris. Thanks for having me on. No dramas. Thanks for your time. It's a, a long time ago now that you were drafted, but taken at pick 53 in the 03 draft, obviously the draft wasn't as, I suppose, high-profiled back then as what it is now. What were you doing on draft day, and had you spoken to many clubs in the lead-up to the draft? Uh, yeah, mine was a bit of a strange situation because I was drafted when I was just 17, uh, which now I don't think they're allowed to do. So I was only in uh, year 11, and we'd spoken to one club. It was Brisbane. When I say we, it's my parents, given that at that age you, you still kind of need a lot of guidance on these kinds of life decisions but we told them that I was not going to nominate for the 2003 draft in, because I wanted to finish school as a priority um, and that and that was that and then I came home one day from school uh, athletics training or something and my par- parents sat me down and said that they'd been speaking to Richmond and Richmond were keen to draft me but if they did I was going to be able to prioritize school even play school football but come into training and, and whatnot when I could so it was, it was a pretty big decision because I, I, I probably didn't quite know what I was getting myself into, but at the same time, I knew being a professional footballer was going to be a distraction for my studies. Um, but I, I thought, you know what, why not? This, I've got nothing to lose. So it was, uh, it, was an interesting, it was an interesting few weeks waiting to see what happened, but I was actually playing volleyball for the school volleyball team um, on the day that I got drafted. I literally think I was on court and one of the boys um, yelled out, hey, Jacko, you just got drafted to Richmond. <laughs> And I said, "Oh, beautiful! We'll have to have a look at that afterwards." <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> straight back to it, yeah. yeah. Took a call from Danny Frawley, so um, geez, that feels like a long time ago. Wow. Far out. And how did it go with the the balance with the schooling? Did, was it something that ended up being fairly manageable? It was. Richmond were really good. I mean, they 2004 was obviously Danny Frawley's last year for uh, the younger crowd listening, but um, the. The club ran to the pub. He knew he was on his way out, and they'd given me a lot of um, leeway to get my studies done. But saying that, I'd, I'd managed to play a few games in the VFL for Coburg at the time in my school holidays. Um, but most of the year, I was play- spent playing school football. But I played again. I think it might have been one game. I used to, I started off as sort of centre half back, half back, and I played on um, Ben Holland, Dutchy Holland, who was a big unit. And he was at the end, end of his career, but I managed to s- compete with him relatively well on the day. I think they decided then, oh, well, why don't we give Dan an opportunity against you know, against the men just so I had a taste leading into the following year. So I actually ended up playing, what I played, I think six games um, at the end of the 2004 season. So I'd be at school during the week. I'd train with the school team on maybe a Tuesday and a Thursday night, whenever it was. And then I would have a kick around with the Richmond team on the Friday before the weekend and then go and play. <laughs> just It's something that just wouldn't that's, happen. That's anymore. a bizarre scenario, isn't it? Like, yeah, you, you oh. wouldn't see that happen anymore. Was there a, an element of expectation put on you, I suppose, from the schooling front, playing school footy, but being an AFL player? Not really. They were pretty good as well. Um, I just had I, the school was really good at providing. I guess these days at schools they call it pastoral care, but I don't know what the word was back then. But just sort of more of that. It's not even emotional support, but I think they just acknowledged there'd be a lot of pressure, and I was probably a bit naive. So when there were practice exams or you know assessments coming up, and there was football on the line, they were very good at just helping me out, giving me extra time, whatever I needed. So both parties were really good. The strangest thing that happened in that time period is we were due to play Collingwood at the G's probably about round 19 or 20 and it was also coincided with the very last school game and 
I mean, I'd never grow up, grew up. It wasn't that I didn't aspire to play AFL, but I didn't start playing footy until I was 14. So I never really thought I would. Just happened to be very competitive and a good runner. So it was more of the athlete side that I think Richmond saw at the time. But anyway, I, I remember being torn that I really wanted to play my last game of school footy because the only reason I played football was because my schoolmates had said, you you can't keep playing soccer at 14. You're too big for that. Come play. Um, so I, I remember I knocked on Danny Frawley's office one day. I went and asked him if I could go and play for Kerry against Scotch College instead of playing against Collingwood on the MCG. And I, I think he was a bit bewildered at the time, but uh, <laughs> he said, sure, if that's what you want to do. And again, back then, we didn't have social media and Twitter and you didn't yep. have to deal with any of the crap. But I know there was a few you know, people in the media saying, well, that's a strange decision. So I played school footy on the Saturday and the next week I was back in the team against for Richmond, whoever else we were playing that week. So I imagine now if someone did that, it would probably get all kinds of comments on. Oh, you'd be everywhere. Media, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> bit bit different but that was just how i prioritized it i think i loved about footy was playing with my mates and as i became a you know, richmond player it was the same thing i loved the club and the fans and all that but ultimately i always did it for the guys i played with so i think yeah. you know the decision sits with me good well now still yeah i think that's a nice touch just to show that respect to the school that obviously gave you the opportunity and the chance to kickstart everything as well Mm, mm, exactly. uh, you play, played your first game against the Saints in round 16, 2004. How early in the week were you told that it was going to be your first game, and what do you remember from it? Yeah, I think they told me early in the week just so I'd have time to not be too distracted. Um, I, I, yeah, I really had no idea what I was in for. I think I was probably a lot less nervous in my first year of AFL than the next few years, probably because expectations are low when you're first starting and also I, I just didn't know what it was to expect out there so I went in full of confidence that you know I can compete with anyone because I'd never played with men before I'd played a handful of TSC cup games as an under 17 year old and then school footy um and for, I think I, I went all right I think uh, in my first year it was my second third and or third year I think I was in July but my second year I really struggled because I think the expectation goes up in your mind and, and, and the coach's mind um and we had a new coach too, so we were aspiring to do more, whereas the tail end of a season when you're winning the wooden spoon, if you're the first guy getting a kick, the other players probably have a lot on their mind, but for me it was just nothing but upside. So I think I was pretty excited. It was, it was again, strange walking around school when everyone is asking you about <laughs> you playing in the AFL on the uh, on the weekend. But, yeah. Um, yeah, I... I like I didn't have, I don't, I don't think anyone would have said I was too arrogant about it. I just continued on as as per normal, got my studies done, and made sure to hydrate before the game on the weekend. Did you find you ended up with a few more mates that you didn't know you had as you went through the, the final bit of school? <laughs> uh, maybe got a touch more attention. The boys always just because uh, it's a co-ed school, so I know a lot of my mates at the time uh, that I was playing footy with were wondering if I was um, getting any more t- more attention from the ladies. But I had a girlfriend at the time, so no, I was pretty well behaved. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it was, I mean, late in the year, it was pretty busy time for getting ready for exams. So uh, when the season finished, I remember I think I had a few nights out with some of the with the Richmond guys, the younger Richmond guys, and then I was straight back to exams, finished exams, all my schoolmates went off to schoolies or whatever, and I was straight back into pre-season. So I kind of missed the, the, the short story on both of those. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's pretty stiff. <laughs> I've made up for it since I retired. It's okay. <laughs> uh, and you spoke about that we obviously struggled a little bit uh, early on from a, a results perspective. Was it difficult playing in a team that was struggling like that to win games, like to find your feet? Yeah, the, the thing I think that's really hard for young guys is just the inconsistency, being in and out of the side and often changing positions. So I was drafted as a as, as a centre-half back, wasn't quite big enough for an AFL centre-half back, but I used to play you know, lockdown roles as a half-forward, sometimes back pocket. And then I got, throughout my career, sort of 
moved around the bit to the forward line and not it wasn't until quiet maybe 2008 that they finally moved me into the midfield initially as a as a tagger so you know for my first year really 2004 but I was at school then I had 2005 6 and 7 that I was just everywhere and that was what I think was harder than anything you just you're not already you're not that confident anyway as a young guy and then you're just not that confident in, in any position and you just keep moving around and then you're back in the VFL so um, the losing part was tough, but again, when you're young, your priority is probably more about you. And then as you get older, you broaden to your teammates. And then I think as you mature, you look to the club and the, the, the best clubs fast track their young guys through that process and that evolution more quickly than others, I think. Um, but for me, yeah, that challenge was just the inconsistency. And it took you a couple of years to get your first goal, but it finally happened in round 17, 2006 versus the Saints. You got two goals. What was the moment like kicking your first AFL goal? <laughs> now you're testing me. I don't know. I vaguely have recollection that might have been at the at Telstra Dome back then. I, I think it was, yeah. Yeah, I, I. The only reason I remember it is one of my sort of must have been my, my hundred game highlight package. There's a picture of, of, of there was footage of me floating across in front of Richo as he's holding his man down and and I'm taking a mark and I've got a shocking hairdo. My hair was still pretty red back then, so uh, I don't. I can't really remember what it was like at the time, but I do not know. No, looking back now, I think why didn't I get a proper haircut? Now, you, you must remember this one. The goal against the Bulldogs. You got your goal of the year nomination. Ty Vickery fumbled the ball a bit in the forward yep. line, handballs it out, and you banana it from the boundary line. And the, you had a, a look of shock on your face that it went in. Is that a fair account of what happened? Well, the, the, that's a fair account of the goal. Everyone used to accuse me. No, I was, certainly wasn't a, and a finesse player. We all knew that. But uh, Andy Cracker and, uh, and Richard Tamley and a few of the other boys, I used to spend a lot of time with them and they'd teach me the craft of all the sort of the, you know, the really special stuff they could do with a footy. And that was the one thing I used to be pretty good at, the, the fade-away check side as you're kind of falling away from goal. Nothing else would ever – couldn't banana it to save my life, but I could do that. And I did it again in a VFL game maybe a year later. Or I don't know. I was down in the twos. And I remember some guy on the other side of the fence just said, get – you know what, yeah. Jackson. And then I did it again at AFL against... No, you know what? I did the first time I ever did it was against Essendon in about 2008. Uh, I think it might have been a Dreamtime game. Um, so the, the second time I did it against the Bulldogs, I thought I could claim that a lot more because I'd done it a couple of times at that you stage. Met, that's right. And you had a couple of good goals against the Hawks in the rain. I think it was a left foot one that you sort of dribbled along the ground. So the, the training you did with those boys obviously paid off. Yeah, I should have spent more time with them because goal kicking was never really my strength. I was preferred to give it off to someone else, but at least I got a couple for the highlight video. <laughs> it was a pretty decent highlight reel. I, I'd forgotten a lot about some of those ones that you scored. I'm like, that's really impressive. That's better than you know a lot of the other spe- Ford specialists. Well, I remember there was a friend of mine who's a bit older, older sort of mentor. He brought up. I went around to his house for a beer one day, and one of his kids, you know, the kids know all their. They've got their cards and their super coach and stuff. And he says, "You're in my super coach team." I said, "Oh yeah." How's that working for you? He goes, you kick too many points. I said, yeah, it's been trouble for me too. Don't worry. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's. Yeah, would you put yourself in a super coach team if you at the peak of your powers and you were playing super coach? Would you put yourself in the team? Well, I'm, I think I'm coming last in my tipping comp in Europe at the moment, and that says a lot given that some of them aren't even Australian. So as far as picking teams, I'm not a particularly, I'm not an expert at it. But no, I, I definitely wouldn't have put my. Oh, actually, I had one or two years I think when I was generating. Uh, you get a good numbers yeah, yeah but they would they would have see tucky and i used to get stitched up because they would talk, they would say it was um ineffective possession if you got a if you cleared it and the other team turned it over so a lot of hit our grunt work you when you're an in and under mid it's just about getting the ball forward yeah and i remember back then i don't know these days but you don't get 
you don't get good points for that. So I think that cost us, but <laughs> there was probably a few other things that cost too. A lot of free kicks against really hurt me most of the time. <laughs> Yeah, the old uh, white line fever, which we'll get to shortly. <laughs> um, you mentioned the tagging role before. Was that something that you enjoyed doing? And how did it come about? I mean, you obviously mentioned you were flicked around from various positions. And how did it sort of prop up that that was going to be a role suited to your game? Yeah, look, the reality was it, it, it came up because uh, they just ran out of ideas of where to put me. So it was, a, I reckon it was 2008, maybe 2007. I'm pretty sure it was 2008. I was floundering in the twos. I'd played maybe 25 games over those first couple of years. I'd had issues with my hamstring, um, basically missed a whole year with end up having to get surgery on a tendon. And so the, I think they were just thinking, geez, what are we going to do with him? Um, and I was thinking the same thing. But there's one thing I was always good at, and that was running. Like I came from an athletics and rowing background. I'd win all the time trials. It just hadn't correlated to make me a great footballer at any point. But it was Craig McRae who's back at the club now. He was a... He was an assistant or development coach at the time and, and broached the idea with me. And I, to be honest, was like, why would I want to do that? Let's just leave me to finish out my career in peace on the halfback line or something. And he, you know, he did a lot of work with me um, on sort of how the role would, what I needed to learn and whatnot. And I was kind of like a duck to water because I loved to scrap. And there wasn't too many people that could run like I could at my size, you know, 90 kilos plus. Yeah. Um, and so I ended up quite enjoying it for those things. But the, the I wish they'd put me as a tagger from day one because the best thing is you're playing on the top players in every team every week so you really learn the craft so much more quickly as i said at the start having been drafted at 14 it took me a long time to learn a lot of the the nuanced skills and and sort of the things that people see um just because i was a late bloomer uh, or a late starter so playing on gary ablett and then being on chris judd and then might be on sam mitchell the next week and then joe watson i was able to start to work out like geez i've I reckon I could probably learn to do that. And then, oh, yeah, you know what? That's a pretty good trick. And so then after a while, when we stopped, it was more under Damien Hardwick, when we had less emphasis on tagging, I was able to carve my own right as, a, as an inside mid. So, yeah, if, I reckon if I had started that role a lot earlier, I probably would have fast-tracked a bit quicker to where I eventually got to. Okay, interesting. Um, you mentioned a couple of big names there before. Who were the toughest players you had to play on? Uh, for me, the hardest ones were the sort of the quick zippier guys. I mean, I, I've, I when I can get my pace up, or oh, I shouldn't say that anymore. I'm, I'm very slow now, but um, off the mark, I was never as quick as say like a, a Lee Montana or a, um, oh, Boomer Harvey was always a tough one because he would just he would have this turn of speed that I just couldn't keep up with. Um, whereas if you put me on a bigger bodied guy, uh, I was generally going to be a better runner and just I could match them strength for strength. So yeah, anyone that was sort of Zippy, um, Lee Montagna and I get on quite well off the field. We never really got on that well on the field, though. So he was a tough one because he was he was like me. He loved to scrap, didn't hold back. So he was probably the one that I um, had probably the greatest challenge on. You uh, you mentioned the giving away a free kicks earlier on. This one's not so much about a free kick, but about a, a suspension. And we, I think it's a bit of a dubious one. And I think you felt the same way. The 2010 Hawthorne game. They all were. <laughs> the uh, the 2010 Hawthorne game with the the headbutt on Campbell Brown. So you obviously copped a pretty heavy hit moments before, and you took it to the tribunal and fought the case uh, and cited evidence that you didn't actually recall the conscious decision to to do that. Is that and that's still what you stand by now? And you obviously feel hard hard done by by that decision getting weeks for it. Yeah, that one in particular. I thought I thought for one there was nothing in it. Looking at the re- at the review, I. You've got to be careful what you say these days. But, yeah, I'd worn a bit of a hit. I They were taking me to the bench. I was obviously deemed okay to be going out back and playing. 
Um, but generally, it takes a little bit to kind of get you know, get your wares again after you've after you've worn one. But I thought more than anything else, like three weeks for what they constituted a headbutt when all I really did was like brush past him. He laughed and pointed to his nose was ridiculous. And if you yeah. were to go and place all most of the suspensions I got, so there was that one, there was a wet one before that. I think I coat line coat hanging someone but not like it was just a just a stupid tackle that went too high and i got a week there was quite a few in there chris knights who ended is a great mate of mine now i gave him a sort of jumper punch which ironically the year after i retired or after he retired he got on the the tribunal um or the the game review group and that was when they started not giving weeks for jumper punches into the gut so <laughs> i think these days like back then is when they started 2009 and 10 is when they really first started using the behind the goals cameras and the, and the ones that you don't use for media that the coaches use to analyze games so they could scrutinize a lot more and so a lot of the stuff you used to get away with and by by that i mean i used to get away with started to get captured and i think all of a sudden because they had this footage they thought oh geez we need to start acting on it and so if you put a lot of those, like that Campbell Brown one, if you put that into the tribunal system now, I'd, I'd be astonished if it got three weeks. And there'd be a few others of mine as well where I, I, I don't reckon I would get as many or any weeks at all. But at the same time, I can't pass the puck you play within the system that you do. I'm sure in another five or six years or ten years, it'll, it'll change again. So everyone always laughs or they're surprised when they hear I've got a rap sheet as long as Jake King's. But that's probably why we're best mates. Do you think that the tribunal, and I still think it happens to this day, that they base their decision off the player as opposed to the incident? Like if you were, say if that was, um, I don't know, like a, so Trent Cotron or someone like that, someone who is deemed as a, a leader and a, a clean skin kind role of player. Model. Good role. I mean, not that you weren't a good role model, but you know what I mean? Like once you start getting a bit of a name for suspensions for whatever reason, do you think they start targeting people just because of the name as opposed to the action? Well, for a long time too, the system was geared towards if you were a repeat offender, you were going to get extra late um, penalties. So the system, I think, certainly didn't help that. And I, yeah, I, I get your question. It doesn't help me to sort of say that, oh, that people had it in for me because I was – but there does seem to be a bit of a trend over with that over the years. But also if I'm running the game and there's a, you know, a, a Dane, Paddy Dangerfield that may miss a week, like people pay to go and see him play. And I think that does save some of the big guys from time to time. And it makes sense. Like the, the game's to make money. People weren't coming to watch Dan Jackson play. Um, and maybe they were using me and some of the other guys a bit more of a, well, we can't allow this stuff so we can give him two or three weeks because it'll make it, you know, make the point for the rest of the players. But, you know, that could just be us being wrong with our subjective opinion or maybe we're 100% spot on and I was harsh you don't lie and I can get I mean, an apology. <laughs> it, 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 on the surface as a supporter, it looks like that. Will hap- that's what happened. You look at the Gary Ablett ones he got off on this year with the elbows. If that was, and you look at what Soldo got done for. And yeah, you think, how, how can you draw the same, those different conclusions on incidents like that? But yeah, it's, uh, you guys, it was, if you had asked me five years ago, I probably would have thrown him under the bus. I've mellowed out a bit these days. I don't <laughs> headbutt as many people and I don't tend to have as, as um, aggressive a views either. <laughs> um, you were part of the leadership group from 09 to 2014. Was that something you really enjoyed? Yeah, that was something that, yeah, definitely. I, um, the hard part was coming into the leadership group halfway through 2009 was when there was a bit of an upheaval from the playing group around um, Terry Wallace and what they thought his role should be or not be anymore. Um, so that was kind of literally my first sort of week in the leadership group or well, the first few weeks was um, helping sort of manage that. But it, it, I'd, I'd always been sort of a leader in my other in my, my school sport and, and, and other places. It took me a bit longer at the footy club just because you're – you kind of as you're getting older it gets easier but um also comes with confidence how you're playing on the field 
but yeah, certainly something that I really enjoyed. I did have written down about the Terry Wallace saga. Now, there's obviously a lot of media speculation, and like you said, it's happened as you as soon as you jump into a leadership role, which is very poor timing um, that you have to deal with that. But what was the crux of it all? I mean, the, the main speculation was it seemed to be a communication breakdown between Terry and the playing group. Is that just about what it was? Yeah, you know, that, that's exactly what it was. I think you see it when coaches are under the pump, it's natural human instinct. You start to... I think go a bit more insular so you're trying to find solutions and you know but you ask anyone who how they manage their stress most people with will withdraw socially now obviously being the footy club head coach it's not a social job but i think terry was trying to find solutions to the problem of of us losing and we're spending a lot of time with the senior side and the guys he thought could make the biggest impact but there it was certainly from below and we had quite a young list you know we had a big core group of young players um, I think they were feeling a bit neglected just because they were stuck down there and no one was really talking to them and and that kind of just built. I mean, there were a few other things as well, but ultimately there was a disconnect. Um, and you see it more and more in footy clubs these days. The best coaches are really good people managers, and Terry was great footy strategist and um, probably not as good on the on the on the young people side. So uh, and. <laughs> Footy, I think, change. You look at Richmond. I'm sure you want to talk about it, but in 2016, it could have been a very similar case. But the board mm, was a lot yep. more stable. You know, they 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 behaved a lot differently administrative level. And, to, and Damien Hardwick gets to stay. Well, back then the board wasn't as stable. There were different personalities in it, and Terry Wallace didn't get to stay. So, you know, who knows if he had stayed around? Maybe he could have turned it around. Maybe not. There's no point speculating. But yeah, you're spot on. I think it was the disconnect in communication. And one of the most fascinating things that's happened in recent times, and it's happened even back when you were playing as well, so Wallace finishes up and then Jade Rawlings takes over. We win our first game against West Coast, I think it was. What changes from one week to the next that playing groups tend to get this second win? Like even tonight as we speak, St Kilda are about to knock off the Bulldogs. Um, (laughs) what, What changes it? I find it fascinating. Is it just you play with more freedom? I think that's definitely an element. Um, I'll fill you in later on on sort of what I'm doing now, but this is an area of interest that I'm sort of going into career-wise. I think there's an element of... It's, it's hard to speak about the Jade Rawlings one because I can't remember as well, but he was a very personal guy, so the guy he had really good relationships with the players. I think if you look at all the coaches that have taken over at the clubs at the moment who have had similar success, I think you would argue that they... I don't know them all personally, but used to play against a lot of them and just from the sort of the chat around the different guys that I still stay in touch with, same kind of thing. They've got good relationships. It's very easy as an assistant coach to have a close relationship. As the senior coach, you tend to have to have a step away and have more of a systems approach. And I wonder if there's an element of just there, again, you're playing with, with freedom, as you're saying, but also there's a bit more of what I've seen Richmond create. There's, a, there's more of a connection. And so guys are really going like, okay, there's less of a burden now and – this guy's looked after me for the last however many years. And so it just raises the the energy in the group, the positivity in the group. There's a bit more connection and all those things help culminate for a little while. The interesting one is how long these things kind of last. Yeah. Um, and I know with Jade, I don't, I, we won a few games, but we lost more than we won. And I think in most cases that tends to be the case and maybe why the coach, these fill-in coaches never get the role, but... Yeah, it's interesting. It's not, that's not that's actually a point I hadn't thought of about the relation, the existing relationships that were able to be built. I mean, you look at North Melbourne now with Reece Shaw. They've obviously been there for a little while, and they're probably being able to sustain it for a lot longer than most other coaches. But that's definitely an interesting angle to to consider that ex- existing relationships that you're able to obtain with those coaches. 
Mm. Well, I'm just wondering too why teams don't ever give a one-year contract. I, mean, I think it used to happen back more in the sort of the 70s and 80s, but give a guy the year to see what happens. If there's no one out there, I know a lot of clubs go out as quick as they can to find the next best candidate, but if the market doesn't have many suitable candidates for what your club needs, by the time, I mean, everybody is so the sports industry is a tough one because there's this expectation that you win all the time, but really it's a long game. You can't turn a club around yeah. immediately anyway. And I know I was, I was at the club last week doing, I'm doing some research actually at the moment for my masters, but I was sitting down with the chief Benny Gale and he, um, he'd looked at it, I think back in the day, you mentioned that someone had looked into Richmond's historical data around when they appoint a new coach, how do they go? And funnily enough, um, they don't tend to go any better. So every time you change coaches, you it takes there's a few years before you even look likely to go any kind of positive trajectory. And we went through a period for a couple of decades where we were just churning them all the time. Yeah. So you've got no stability at all. And clubs just don't win without stability. So players, if you're playing at the peak of your – if you're going to be a peak performer, you need to have feel reassured that things are going well and you've, it's all about positivity and whatnot. And you don't get that if you're in a climate where everybody's uncertain because then naturally there's a, people put walls up. They don't talk as honestly. There's a bit more termite white anting behind the scenes and then you flip them over again. Yeah, yeah. you don't want to be restarting every single time and that by the time you get to that third or fourth coach, the pressure must just be intense to try and get some kind of a result. You must be feeling it internally and externally. I think so. You just, you just lose a bit of hope, get disgruntled, and that's where you yeah. see players just, people would say, oh, they're not trying. Well, every athlete will, every, every athlete is always trying, but there is a level of where that trying's at, their baseline, and if they're feeling really good about themselves and the team's confident, that effort's right up there, like you see Richmond playing now and from 2017 when they start to turn it around. But if there's a team at the bottom, like the Gold Coast at the moment, you know, they just look a bit dejected out there, and you yeah. can't hold that against them. I mean, they, they're getting pumped all the time, and they they probably aren't seeing much light at the end of the tunnel at this point, unfortunately. You had your career best year in 2013, winning the Jack Dye medal at 27 years of age. How proud of an achievement was that for you? Yeah, it was probably a bit of a uh, shock first and foremost. But, um, yeah, no, I, I, pride was definitely the, 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 the biggest feeling. And just because I'd had to work very hard to get to that point and had to make quite a lot of sort of changes. I'd always trained hard and always given 110% effort but I'd had a, plagued a lot of self-doubt early days, again, probably because of, like I said at the start, my player position as a player was um, always changing. I was in and out of the side. I played under, well, I had Danny Frawley, then Terry Wallace, then Jade Rawlings, and then Dimmer came in. So, again, just trying to get that stability in my own mind as well. But then finally, the end of 2012, I managed to shake. I'd just been battling chronic hamstring tendonitis from 2010, um, and a hip issue as well. And so finally got a full preseason, got through a whole year without getting injured. And um, that, that, again, comes back to that confidence and the, and the momentum you can get from it. So at the end of that year, I kind of thought, oh, thank God, I've finally worked out this. I finally cracked the code on how to get a proper kick. But uh, unfortunately, not long, long later, the, uh, the body wasn't really agreeing with me. But at least I've got that to hang my hat on. And was it true that 2013 was probably one of the years you started to get back to wanting it just to be fun again? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, 2012, I'd had enough. Halfway through the year, I'd been like... 2009, I had my first full year. We won a wooden spoon, but I came runner-up in the BNF and was leading into the last few rounds and then was just ran out of um, juice. So I finished that one feeling pretty good. Then you get a new coach and you kind of just forget about that. 2010 started really well and then then the Campbell-Brown suspension cost me because that was three weeks. And I think, again, I was leading the BNF by about round 10 
missed three games and then trained really hard to kind of make up for I felt guilty about missing games and developed this hamstring tendonitis towards the end of the year and then so missed the last few games again and that lingered all the way through that preseason so I got through enough to be able to play games in 2011 but I was very much underdone and as I said I got drafted because I was an athlete not because I was a footballer and really I played my best footy because I was an athlete not because I was a great footballer and so all of a sudden I wasn't a great athlete and that matched with the fact that I wasn't a great footballer and then I was good enough to stay in the side, but not good enough to be playing at the level that I would expect and others. So 2011 and 12 were really hard mentally and emotionally because I just constantly felt like I was um, underperforming. And so halfway through 2012, I was about to give it up and sort of, I think it's documented, but gone and met with a few different people and tried a few different approaches, learned to meditate so I could be more calm, um, started practicing a lot of the stuff that you hear about now around resilience. I'd practice gratitude in the evenings, but the one rule I said to myself, I said, I will play footy as long as I'm having fun. And it's the day that I'm not having fun anymore, I'm out. I've had, I'm done. And so and the rest of 2012, I started implementing all that, went into the 2013 preseason. If I wanted to have a beer on a Wednesday and a Thursday night, I'd have a couple of beers. If I wanted to go for an extra run around the town on my day off and, and not listen to what the uh, athletic trainers said, I would just go and do it because – I sort of thought I know myself pretty well after 10 years. I can train harder than anyone else. And if I want to live my life and, and have a bit more fun on the side, that's my responsibility as a mature athlete. So all of a sudden, I just the shackles were kind of off and I just went there with a much bigger smile on my face every day. I felt like I was much better in my relationships at the club because I was happier. So therefore, I was supporting guys a lot more. Um, and it just made, yeah, for a much, much more enjoyable and then ultimately successful year. That's yeah, that's an unbelievable turnaround, and I mean, obviously, really good that you sounded out whatever you needed to do to to get yourself sort of mentally in that right state of mind, and it obviously um, paid dividends for you, which is good. Yeah, exactly. I just wish I'd done that earlier. <laughs> yeah, true. I mean, yeah, I suppose it's what's what's could Mine's have been. Right, eh? <laughs> uh, you, you announced the retirement in September 2014 before our finals match against Port, which probably, in hindsight, didn't turn out a bad one to miss. Uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah, that was a long trip up and back for, to, to watch that. But uh, what was the driving force behind the decision and the, more importantly, the timing of it? Because, I mean, by all accounts, I think you, you would have been playing essentially if you didn't pull the pin. Well, that, if I look back now, I mean, you see more guys dealing with it at the moment, but it got to the 2014 preseason wasn't too bad, but I developed this hamstring tendonitis again early. And so I started battling through that. And I was in and out of the side. Then I got on the side. Then I hurt my hip and strained a glute. And I got back in the side and then um, got cleaned up against GWS up there and got this bone bruising on my hip and tendon bruising. And I just lost all power and ability to run. And so I was in and out, in and out. And my, um, might have been round 21, I was coming back from one of these injuries in the VFL. I just had, I just was really struggling to get a kick. And Dimmer had sort of said, just need you to get a game under your belt. We can bring you back in against Sydney the next week. And um, I look at the patterns now when I got suspended, tended to be something wasn't going well. So if my body was struggling a bit, I would be then getting more stressed. And then when I'm under stress, human instinct, you just don't react as, as well. I would lash out. So I got a week suspension from cleaning up some kid from the, the Bulldogs reserves and missed the Sydney game. And so Dimmer said, right, well, I need you to train hard and make sure you're available for the first final. But at this point, I just had this real doubt in my mind. I was really, really struggling for motivation. I was really struggling to get up to go to the footy club every day. Uh, a lot of the guys I'd spent a lot of my career with had gone. Kingy had just retired, and he was a really you know, sort of a good, solid mate that I'd spent a lot of the time confiding in if I was having a shit time. And um, 
I just kind of knew I'd seen enough guys hang around over my 10, 11 years that I know what it does to a guy when he's not playing at the level um, but is expected to sort of be there every day. And I just saw myself, if I hung around for the last year of my contract, being a bit of a negative influence if I couldn't train to the level and perform at the level. And I had quite a strong personality as a leader. I just always wanted to see myself as a positive, supportive guy. And I was just in a I'm sort of reluctant to say I was in a dark place, but I just definitely wasn't happy. Um, and so that week leading into the port final, I was supposed to tell Dimmer after I got through training whether I was good enough to, to play, and I definitely wasn't. I was so close to this hip just tearing. Um, I could hardly change direction, and I kind of really just wanted to play a little bit for my own selfish reasons because I'd only played one final the year before, and obviously losing to Carlton in that second half, um, I just felt like I would love to get back out there and have another crack. And then the other part of me was um, that's selfish because if you go out there and you can't perform, well, that's someone else could have probably come in and done a better job. And then the top of all that was, well, maybe I'm going to retire at the end of the year because I just don't know I could get through another whole 12 months. So I think in hindsight, I probably should have sat down with someone and had a just an open conversation and said, I'm really struggling and I might need a bit of time away to think about it. But um, on that day, I happened to go in there. I literally woke up in the morning thinking, I'll just go tell Dimmer I'm not right. And then for whatever reason, I kind of I, I chatted to someone in the morning outside of the footy club, walked in there, sat down with him and said, well, I'm not right to play. And I just haven't got it admitted to do this anymore. I think you're better off replacing me with uh, with someone who can, you know, really commit in the long term. So it was a, it was a tough decision, but it was definitely the right one because my body, even since retiring, I can do, I can still run around, but uh, my back and my hips are pretty rooted. So I would have been um, just taking up a spot on the list through 2015, I reckon. Um, and and that decision obviously but, still sits well with you. There's definitely no regrets at the, the timing of it all. Yeah, look, I'd played for 11 years, and I think, I mean, we've just run chronologically through my career. As I said at the very start, I was never really a kid that aspired to to be an AFL player. I won a BNF, which is something that I never thought I'd do. Played 150 games, which made me a life member. Never thought I'd do. Played a final in front of 90 odd plus thousand people and some other pretty cool games along the way. I just knew it. There was I wasn't going to make it to 200 games. I was never going to win another BNF. I was hoping that I'd be around for Richmond flag, but even at that point. That would have still looked like probably realistically a couple of years off, and and they did look. They 2017. It'd have been a miracle if they had managed to get me through to 2017. The only thing I'd say now, I can tell you in a bit what I've sort of been doing at the club, just doing some research for my masters. The way the club operates now, had I been in that headspace, I think I still would have tried to stay there as long as I can because it's just such a positive and supportive and um, just enjoyable place it seems to be at the moment. And that, I think even if you are injured, like Rancy might be now, you're going to be in a lot greater spirits. You're going to have much better support. And then you just don't know. If you get all that the head right, maybe the body starts to come good. But that's not what the place was like when I finished. So, nah, I've been quite happy the last five years touring around the world doing my own thing. And on, on that, about the, the development of the club perspective, it's obviously miles apart from when you first started to what it is now, isn't it, with the, the structures and the leadership within the club, not so much the playing group, but just all the people behind the scenes. Yeah, it's you couldn't. It, <laughs> I was in yeah in quite a bit the last two weeks, uh, interviewing different people and, and, and catching up with people, and the guys that have been around for a while were sort of you know they say it's hard to emphasise to the young guys what it used to be like. So even in two thousand and sort of eight, nine, and ten, I don't think we moved into the new facility into two thousand and ten or eleven. Like the the place, the old club rooms were so just 
decrepit that we had possums running around in the roof. Like, there'd be possum shit in the ice bars. There were holes in the walls. We went through Jeez. a good few months with only cold showers because they didn't want to replace the water heater because we were moving out at the end of the season. The masseurs were in the same room as like the locker room. So you got female masseurs and you got like guys kind of getting changed to go out on the track. There was no room for anything. Like the place was wouldn't if you if you went in there now and and that was someone's AFL environment, you would you would be mind blown. So it's they say it's quite hard even just to look at the facilities now and and think that was ever possibly the the case. And that's just a, a micro example of how far the, the place has gone. You know, now they have a full time mindfulness uh, coach. They've got leadership programs that are sort of you know, world leaders. They've got assistant and development coaches coming out of the year and years and really, really qualified ones. They've just they try and do everything they can, not just for the development of the guys on field, but for off field as well as for the whole round person. And I think that's why you see the results you do now, because the guys just genuinely have this love for the club. And you see that when they play. They they celebrate together, they 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 chase, they do everything they can for the footy club. It sounds like probably they play footy like the old Richmond teams of the of the seventies and eighties or whatever. Um, when everyone was afraid of them, but it comes from a different place now. There's no fear in there at all. It's just built on this, yeah, you know, this genuine love and connection, which I think is pretty awesome. Is it fair to say that Peggy O'Neill and Brendan Gale are the two best cl- recruits the club's had for quite some time? Oh, it's a it's a big call. I think from for those particular roles, I think you couldn't have had two better people. I mean, Peggy and I are very close. She um, was my player sponsor back in the day because um, she came to. Australia, you know, a couple of decades ago from Virginia and the States and moved to Melbourne and decided that to get involved and, and meet people socially, it'd be good to pick a footy club and someone took her to a Richmond game. So that's, she just came to the club off her own, you know what, I really like this and then built relationships and wanted to get involved and help out. So became a player sponsor, eventually got on the board. But for Peggy, she just hasn't got any ego at all. Everything she does is for the betterment of other people. And that's why, and like I said, I catch up with her all the time, dinner with her last week. And she would never admit it, but others speak of her stability. Whereas other presidents who'd grown up in Melbourne, and you think about it, most of them are old white men. Um, when you had 2016 happen and Damien's at the end of a sort of six years and people are saying that he hasn't taken the club far enough, I think traditionally they're the guys that get pressured from their cohorts and from history saying something has to – I have to do something here. I have to make a call. I have to tell this coach he's fired. Whereas Peggy – much <clears throat> taking the ego out of it, sat there and looked at it and said, okay, well, what are the pros and cons? And they did a big assessment and they found out that the players loved Damien and he'd actually done a lot considering the confines that he was working within, both those crappy club rooms, the draft restrictions because of the expansion teams. Mm-hmm. Um, they'd had to eradicate all the debt before they could start funding. There were all these things he'd done really well despite we hadn't won those finals. It'd been a pretty good trajectory. So I think she was a, just such a huge part of that puzzle and then the chief as well. I mean, Benny Gale's been around for the club for a long time. He knows it in and out and probably seen what happens with the stuff we've been talking about. When you flip coaches over and you change whole playing groups and stuff, you have to literally start again. So between yep. the two of them, just to go, no, 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 we need to change what Richmond has done for the last 30 years because it hasn't been working. You know, you keep doing what you're doing and getting the same result. That's that definition of, of stupidity or whatever. And so I think, yeah, they had huge influence. But at the same time, the turnaround... In, from 2016 to 17, having Damien and, and Trent, and again, very well publicised, and they've spoken about their mindset to admit imperfections and be really honest about how they were struggling. I think they were probably equally as, as valuable in sort of where the club is at now. Um, and then of all the little periphery people around there, it's a big collective approach, I think. 
I think it was a, it was an extremely brave decision by Peggy and Brendan, given the I suppose the groundswell of the supporters kind of wanting change because of the backward step that was taken. So for them to have the courage to stick to their their goal and their process, and it's obviously paid off in massive dividends now. I, I, yeah, that, I think as supporters we pay them the ultimate respect for having the guts to do that. A hundred percent. And then that. I think is allowed. They've always been like the club has gone and done things a lot differently since then. Like the kinds of people they've brought in, the approach to how they manage their people and um, and whatnot. When you have stability and people give you faith, and pe- and this is the stuff that I'm now looking at taking into the corporate world and saying, well, there's so many things in the corporate world that are just done poorly. The way people are managed, the way um, teams are sort of brought together and. There's so much to learn from what they've gone and done, but I don't think you could have done that under under a traditional on a traditional CEO president that's come through the AFL in the past because the fear of being different sometimes I think puts people off doing it because if we do something different and we fail, then everyone's going to laugh at me or I'm going to yeah. lose my job. But you don't get ahead without taking risks, and that's these two guys would be they were guys Peggy and um, Brendan were just exactly that. They took the risk and look what the reward was. Uh, you uh, achieved a lot in your playing career, but the other significant award I want to ask you about was the inaugural Jim Stein's Community and Leadership Award in 2012. Uh, I remember watching that, and I thought there was just such a special moment to receive that award, just for all the work in the community that you that you did, because I feel like it's not highlighted enough by media or anything like that, that the work that footballers do outside of just playing the game. Uh, was that something you're really proud of as well? Yeah, that that one had a funny story because I knew I'd been nominated, but you don't, like you say, you don't know what players are doing because no one speaks about it. And like, I just felt like I was doing my bit and I'd finished my uni degree and there wasn't much time in the week to get a job, like an internship or anything, uh, or even get work experience, kind of half day a week. But I'd been offered to, I was doing some talks at schools around youth mental health and that was just sharing my story around the challenges of being a professional athlete in the public eye and then I ended up on a few boards. Just I had no idea what I was doing there, but apparently I added value. So for me, it was just kind of this is what I do. But I just assumed there'd be other guys that were doing, and I knew there were other guys doing really amazing things around the league. So I was nominated, and I said, "Oh yeah, cool." What does that mean? They said, "Oh well, if you win, you'll get an award at the Brown." Though. I was like, "Oh yeah, cool." Well, I'm going to be in Mexico, and they're like, "Well, okay, <laughs> we'll, we'll see what happens." I said, "Okay, well, I'm telling you, I'm, I'm going unless you tell me that I need to stay. I'm going." So I flew into LA. And the guy, Michael Lacey from the club who looked after the community stuff says, look, the AFL, they can't say anything other than you're down to the last three they, and they'd like you to come to the Brownlow. I said, mate, I fly to Mexico City tomorrow. I said, I'm not coming back to just sit in the Brownlow. I've got no interest. I'm Mexico City. He said, oh, okay, I'll, I'll let him know. I said, you want to hurry up? I've got my flight in the morning. I woke up in the morning, no email. So I flew to Mexico City. One of my best mates lived there at the time. And uh, a day or two later, he said, look, they're still not, they can't say that you're definitely won but they do say that it'd be worth you coming back <laughs> i was like Mate, again i'm not coming back on a whim and uh he said look they're prepared to help you, you know, cover the costs so i was like it's gonna cost a lot of money to fly all the way back i'm on holidays so anyway i went back and at that point i thought all right well if i've come all the way back here and i've made it pretty clear oh yeah <laughs> i'd want to be getting up on stage and um yeah getting up i don't think i'd quite realized you know i knew jim steins from afar i'd met him once or twice i knew what reach had done but the the special moment in that, especially in that first year, it was it was really touching to to see the video and then people speak that you know that week leading into it and then to receive the first one. But 
Um, I've been rapt to see that the the awards continued. I would love to see more publicity around it, but the reality is, like people watch, they read football media for the controversies or the the stardom. They don't it doesn't sell papers to have the feel good stuff. But it's sad though, isn't it? Because you, like, the footballs do such amazing things that it it should be um, highlighted a hell of a lot more than what it is. It should, but that's where I think this award's great because it's just it's a little snippet on the biggest night of the year and yeah. Just gets a bit of attention, and to be honest, I don't think many guys. I never wanted. No, the club didn't even know that I did all this stuff. Like they were, when they, oh, uh, wow. other than Michael Lacey, who asked me a few bits of facts so he could put the he could nominate me. When I won it, there was a bunch of people in the footy department said, "When do you do all this stuff?" But <laughs> I was always that. That was the the notion back then was just, you just get to footy and you focus on footy. And yeah, okay, we always spoke about you need to have other things going on. But I was yeah. a bit wary that I was doing too much. But for me, I knew the more I did away from footy, the more balanced I felt life was. The better I felt that I was at the club. So I'd get in the club, do what I have to do, really love it, get out, stay busy, wouldn't overthink things, wouldn't pick up and you know have time to read the paper and then feel shit about whatever they were writing. Um, so I knew that it worked for me, but I think I probably just bit wary that I didn't want to be get myself in trouble. So uh, I think that's changed a lot now. Though the clubs I know, Richmond are really good at supporting the guys off field. So hopefully we'll see more and more um, stories come out. Like Basha Hooli does some phenomenal stuff. I think it's yeah. unreal the way he's integrated the uh, the Muslim community around Australia and in particular around Melbourne to get behind the game like that. That stuff that that's going to be a legacy that lasts for for decades, um, which I think is yeah. I don't think that's undervalued, but it can't be valued enough. And were you back on a plane the next day to get back to the holiday? Yeah, I was. I literally, <laughs> I'd gone Melbourne, LA for 24 hours into Mexico City. I was there for like four nights, flew back to Melbourne. I had to get a suit done. Like I flew in, went to Hugo Boss to get a suit because I didn't have a dinner suit and then had the Brownlow and the next day flew all the way back to Mexico City. <laughs> that's <laughs> I awesome. I just lived to be wrecked. overseas in the off seasons. <laughs> so I just wasn't prepared to sacrifice my holiday for, for more jet lag. I thought that's just part of it. Speaking of overseas, you've obviously done a lot of travelling uh, and great work since retiring in 2014. What have you been up to in life after football? Well, we might need another whole hour on a podcast to talk about, but long story short, I as soon as I retired, within six weeks, I'd rented out my house and went backpacking around Central and South America. I'd always wanted to go that part of the world. Just It always fascinated me. Moved up to Canada for two years. I lived in Toronto. Mike's girlfriend was Canadian, so met a bunch. I made a bunch of really, really good friends. Um, worked for an Aussie guy in a in a company for a while. It was my first real job outside of playing footy, um, and then travelled around the US and and Canada. And then my visa ran out there, so I moved over to London just over two years ago and started. I didn't really know what I wanted to do for for a job, so I started just doing some talks in schools. I had some friends who worked in the school private school system in London, so. Just went in there and talked about you know, leadership or resilience and just stuff that I knew from playing footy. And it turns out there's a big need for young people um, in these kinds of areas. So over the last two years, I've been living in London, traveling around Europe as much as I can, but also sort of building this, that's myself at the moment, this consulting business that uh, initially started with school kids and again, yeah, mental health, resilience, that kind of stuff, but has now broadened across into uh, the youth sport over there. So I've been working with some guys in the youth soccer academy system like there's if you're drafted as a kid then it's not at 18 and you don't come from this beautiful tac cup system into a club that wants to look after you you're signed at nine or ten by whoever thinks you're worth it and then you might get traded at 13 someone buys you and they see you as an asset and then at 15 or 16 they tell you you're not good enough so they release you um but along the way there's no athlete development there's no well-being services there's no support services it's just you're a commodity so a real need over there for um, the kind of work that we do really well in Australia. So that's the kind of stuff that I've been doing work-wise, but certainly fitting in as much travel as I can. 
and you've coached a few uh, various AFL teams over in Europe and the US as well. What was that like? Yeah, I've, I, everyone I always asks, oh, have you played a game of footy? I have played one game of footy since I retired, and that was for the Boston Demons versus the Montreal Saints in Montreal on a on a weekend that I'd probably had more made more of an effort in the bar the night before. But <laughs> I had a teammate, Jeremy Hum, ex-West Coast slash Richmond, was living in Boston and playing. So I said, all right, mate, I'll come and play with you. But refused to play. I just pull up too sore, and I'm just wary of um, <laughs> my white line fever kicking in, and you don't make many friends, punch them in the head. So I uh, instead I've, I've I've tried to add value and just doing a bit of coaching here and there and um, not that I'm a great coach but with 11 years in an AFL system you learn some things that internationals just absolutely lap up so yeah I'd like to think that I've added some value but the thing that I love more than anything so I've coached been to tra- run training sessions in the US in different cities around like Portland Oregon and Florida and a few random places all across Canada France the UK Ireland Sweden. And it doesn't matter where I go, you get these people that have never seen a live game of AFL. In fact, they've hardly get much chance to watch the game because it's so expensive for them to get a live AFL pass overseas, which is ridiculous. But they're just so passionate about it. They just love our game. And I, I, get, I get a big kick out of their passion. And that's, We've chatted a lot about my sort of waning passion throughout my career, just trying to keep the positivity up. They, they're just nothing but love for it. And they'd do anything to go to a game um in melbourne let alone um play it themselves so it's just been a great way to make friends and uh reality is afl international is probably never going to be a huge spectacle but now with the women's footy i think there's a great opportunity for aflw to be stocked with talent from across the world because professional women's sport is a long way behind men's sport in regards to providing opportunities and we're starting to see soccer really push for those rights and hopefully it just keeps growing but whilst there aren't many opportunities for top female athletes in team competitive sports at the moment internationally the afl is in such a great spot to grab the best english and french girls they've already i think there's 13 irish girls who have come across and been signed by aflw teams and that just says a lot about how international our women's comp can be and i think from that you get eyes on tvs of the men's game as well as for a growth strategy i think it's a really cool one um but more importantly just how good is that for our game to be attracting the top female talent from around the world and if we get yeah, exactly. another mike pike and a whatnot from a, or a mason cox that's fantastic as well but that's a hard bridge to gap like the afl men's afl is just so far advanced in in what other amateur Aussie rules leagues are around the world at the moment that we'll probably only get a few of those but the girls there's this world's your oyster so i'm really excited to see where that goes so if you're in charge of the AFL, are you trying to set up a AFLW tournament or something like that in a Europe or a US just to raise that exposure? Yeah, I'd be doing as much as I could to support in general. I mean, it's hard because I fully appreciate that the AFL can't um, fund everything. I know they, you know people would love to have a team in Tasmania and there are local clubs in regional Victoria and South Australia that need funding or they're going to go under. So all of a sudden to start saying like, okay, we're going to spend money in in North America to do this or Europe to do that. So it maybe it's a little bit idealistic, but yeah, I think I think even particularly the college system in North America because the girls that play, if you play lacrosse there or any of the sports, like I've done a bit of work in the college um, in a few colleges in the US um, for all student athletes, and it was just around resilience, but it gave us some insight into so how they operate got toured around their facilities and these places are like professional clubs and these athletes these men and women these boys and girls only teenagers are trained like professional athletes they just don't get paid so if you could start to tap into that you kind of got a ready-made talent pool already that you just need to teach how to kick a footy which is a bit easier said than done but um it's certainly worth uh, a look i think and a little bit of investment um 
because I do think it starts if you get a girl, a few girls drafted from an American, a few American colleges, brothers and cousins and mums and sisters and friends are going to start paying interest in yeah, their sure. career, and all of a sudden they see this game. And you ask anyone who's watched the game of AFL, they love it. They also the same thing. Man, that that sport's crazy. There's no rules in that, but at the same time, they go, I really like it. I don't get what's going on, but I like it. Um, so just gotta, you've got to get them onto one game, and then you've got them hooked. And we've obviously seen the uh, the flip side happen with Ben Griffiths, obviously going over and doing some punting. Mm. So it's been able to work both ways, I suppose. But yeah, I think you're right. I think there's in that, that college aspect, it is. It's so professionally run, it's not funny. And compared to what, we sort of, what we're used to with the TAC level, which is good, but it's not at that level of what the, the colleges do over there, I guess. No, it's just the funding. I mean, those colleges print money because they don't have to pay players, and yet they have yeah. broadcast rights and stadium deals. And I actually went and saw Griffo earlier in the year. I was in uh, just outside of LA doing some work, so I went and visited the great man. And he is looking enormous. Uh, he eats like three or four chicken breasts put for lunch, um, <laughs> and that's just his lunch. And then he just because he doesn't have to run anymore, they just get him in the gym, so he just eats to kick it, kick the ball, and, and kicks it. And mark my words, he'll have an elite college career and he gets he'll get a free education which i think is the most important thing um but then uh, he'd be every chance to go to the nfl like that man can kick the ball like no one else i mean obviously he kicks it probably like the rocker boys and ben graham but um he's got plenty of time left in his uh in his body to be able to do it so um go buy yourself a, a griffiths trojans top and and get on board the bandwagon i certainly am yeah <laughs> And uh, you've been working at AFL Europe. What's uh, your role there been like so far? Yeah, it's been good fun. That's, so that's an unpaid um, role just to help, I guess in some ways, be an ambassador to, to find opportunities to help the game. It's, it's The AFL provides some money to AFL Europe to help um, grow the game and get participation. And a lot of the, the talent comes from Ireland. So we see the guys and the girls from Ireland make it to the AFL. But they're... There are leagues in, I think, about 21 countries across Europe. Like there's the Croatians love it. There's two teams in uh, Russia. The teams, a league about to start in Hungary, um, Switzerland, Germany has a lot of teams, all the Scandinavian countries. Like it blows people people's minds when you when they hear about it. Um, so our role is just to help facilitate as much as best we can. So do fundraisers to, to buy more goalposts, um, put, tr- put coaches in different countries through training programs so they, they know how to um, – coach um afl teams because there aren't always aussies for them to tap into um but it's been it's been fantastic like i said before i love meeting people i think now i was in sweden three weekends ago in uh, just north of stockholm for a, a euro cup tournament which was really cool i think um who won the irish and the english are always very good teams but there was representation from across europe i'll be back there's a big tournament in london later in the year last year we were in ireland so a uh I won't say it's a junket because I actually do as much as I – we do quite a bit of work to help grow it. But it just doesn't feel like work because it's it's just – it's amazing. You get to go watch a bunch of people love the game you play and walk around. Uh, they have no idea who you are and they don't care, which is even better. I can have a few yeah. beers on the side and hurl abuse and no one, no one gets me in any trouble. So. I think one of the best things I saw come from that tournament was the initiative from one of the locals to build some goalposts goal for one of the fields that didn't have any. That's just brilliant. He was a Swedish lumberjack. He was a rare unit, a big unit too. Um, but yeah, they for some reason they were a few goalposts short. So he went out in the forest a few days before and picked some really good-looking straight trees, cut them down, shaved them all down. Had he painted them white, they would have looked legitimately like goalposts. I mean, it was, they were big, 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 uh, proper goalpost size goals. And um, 
like this guy, I don't know if there's footage anywhere of him, but he was so passionate about the game. I think he would have um, ploughed and sowed and, and mowed and shaped a field just so he could go out there and have a kick. So uh, the Swedish guys are pretty good too. Uh, they, they had a good red-hot crack. And you mentioned before you're currently in the middle of completing your Masters. Um, how's that all tracking and what are you planning on doing with the qualification once it's all completed? Yeah, so it's a master's in um, performance psychology. So I did a commerce degree at Melbourne Uni. And like I said earlier, I I worked for a bit in a small corporate company in in Canada, but I missed being around sort of high-performing people and teams. I missed being around that energetic environment where everyone's really trying to get better. Unfortunately, the corporate world's built on a lot of people, I think, who just get through the day because they're not that passionate about their work. So I was a consulting company and it floated around lots of different companies, CBRE, big commercial real estate company. It was in at Audible at one point, um, just a bunch of different industries. And I just kept seeing these opportunities. I was like, geez, you could do this so much better. So I found this master's at the University of Edinburgh. Uh, A lot of it comes from sports psychology, but ultimately it's based on how do you help individuals and teams perform better. And that's something I've always been passionate about. And I just learned so much of it at, at, at my time at Richmond. So I'm at, the, at the moment, I'm finishing a, a dissertation, and that's on how do you create and sustain an effective culture change in elite sport. So that's why I've been back at Richmond, because it's such a great case study. They were doing quite a lot of things right, but 2016, obviously, as we've spoken about, was a big drop in performance to the next year winning the flag, 2018 finishing top of the ladder, and they didn't do it through the traditional means of, of buying and selling talent. They did it through, through changing the organizational culture. So I did a bunch of interviews with the key people we've been speaking about and it's just been a really really fascinating uh insight into into what they do and i think they are kind of paving the way for where i see high performing cultures going in the future i think we'll the stick and the carrot method of we'll just pay people more or we will instill fear in people for them to work harder that doesn't work with this young generation anyone who works with young people these days just says the same thing geez we need to give them purpose we need to make them feel good um, and that's what, you know, you watch Richmond play now. They, they play with purpose. They play with passion. They care about each other. Um, and, and who wouldn't want to work? You don't have to play sport to, to want those things. If I'm an accountant and I hate my job and I go in there and I feel like I'm getting yelled at and no one listens to me and I don't get on with my colleagues, I'm not going to last very long as a good accountant. If I go as an accountant and I feel close and connected to my peers and my boss is really positive and, you know, I'm still expected to work hard, but I just feel like I'm a part of a really cohesive team. I keep saying this, it's just human nature to want that. So that's kind of the area that I think there's opportunity and that's the area that I want to be a part of. So hopefully in a couple of years' time, I'll have a few more cues in the rack around actually having helped some teams and organizations do that, but just at the start of the journey at the moment. But so far, so good. And it's underrated. Like I'm fortunate the workplace I'm in, um, it's very much what you're sort of speaking about. Everyone's very positive, um, a lot of support, and there's not one person there that you sort of don't really get along with so but i understand that yeah there's obviously a lot of other workplaces where they're not so lucky but that's good that uh, you hopefully ought to make a big difference to a lot of those other companies well if i figure it out i'll give you a call and you can get me along and we'll see if i'm any good but uh, yeah for sure i've been working with a few teams at the moment and just some really basic things around the stuff i just mentioned and they they they've really enjoyed it so i think everybody loves the idea of sort of being able to learn from sport and that's where it's useful to be an ex-professional athlete and to have access I work with some guys in the US who we work with um, a bit with the ATP, so tennis and the NHL Players Association. And there's so much you can learn from all these kinds of sports. And just like there are things you can learn from corporate, but um, I just think a lot of money gets spent on in, in the sports world because we it's, it's a W and an L at the end of the day, whereas a profit and loss takes a lot longer to sort of to, to sit down and make a decision on, whereas you know whether you're winning and losing in sports. So you, yeah. you invest and make changes quickly. 
All right, now before we let you go, we do have to uh, mention the 2017 Grand Final. There's obviously the famous bit of footage with, uh, I suppose, Brendan, Peggy and yourself in that tight group of three just sharing a lot of emotion and tears um, as that realisation sort of came through that we were going to win. What was that feeling like, just being in that moment um, with the crowd being so loud and just having the Tigers on the verge of winning that flag? Yeah, that was... uh... I, just, I think it was just euphoric uh, more than anything. Chris Newman was just a few rows down to the left, and he and I had obviously spent a lot of time playing together and would have done anything to been out there ourselves, but I would have known just over half the team. Um, I think that was where I sort of was most excited because I knew not just the effort that had been put in, but the, you know, the blood, sweat, and tears, it's the hardship that a lot of those guys had put up with because we'd put up with it for such a long time. Um, I was just really, really pumped for them. Um, and then you know, I, I just got lucky. As I said, Peggy and I are great mates. And whenever I catch up with go to town, they, they always invite me to games and I'll be her guest or the club's guest at a function. So I went to the president's function for the grand final, which was pretty cool. But I'd have been happy sitting in any seat in the ground. I just got lucky that I was sitting next to the chief when he lost the plot <laughs> and went across, <laughs> I think, to give his mum a hug. And I was sitting there as well trying to uh, maybe shed a little uh, happy tear myself. So it's, yeah, I, I'd be saying what everyone else is in that any Richmond supporter was there that day would be know exactly what I'm talking about but I'm I'm glad I flew back for London for that one because um, that's a day I'll never forget and even though I wasn't out there and what about the current Tiger team um, how do you see the season going so far we've got it back on track a bit and the boys are looking pretty good in the back half of the year yeah I've, like I said I've spent some time there the last two weeks they, they're really optimistic um, Rancy being the one that's is the the, the cloud with with injury, um, but all the other guys coming back and I, I hadn't watched I don't watch a huge amount of footy while I'm away, but I went to the GWS game last week with with Kelmore, Nath Foley, and um, Jackie King, and we were just a standard at some of these young guys that we really knew nothing about, you know, Sydney Stack and Shea Bolton um, and a few other. Just the composure and the excitement they had in the team and the trust. There was that first goal that Sydney Stack scored where. He handballed to Jack, and Jack, without even thinking, just gave it straight back to him. And I think that says a lot. When a guy like Jack, who can kick a goal in any moment, decides that it's better to give it back to this young guy, that says they've got a lot of faith in him. Um, and so I think that's what excites me most. We know what you're going to get out of Trent and Dustin and, and Dave and, and Grimesy and all the senior guys, but to be supported by some guys you just wouldn't have expected. In the past, we never would have had first, second, third-year players breaking games apart. And that's where I think we're really dangerous, um, not just for this year, but you know, as, as we keep going on, if they can sustain this culture and have people just feeling good about themselves, you don't need to be six or seven years in to, to be a game breaker. Um, I think that's really exciting. And I think as much as the injuries at the start of the year were not great and we didn't want them, it's kind of been a little bit of a blessing in disguise to find that talent because Stack wouldn't have played those early games, Bolton wouldn't have had his chance, so... It's been a little bit of a blessing, but yeah, it is exciting. You're right. The one thing as a supporter that I've noticed that's changed is the the level of trust. Um, just dishing off those extra handballs so we're going in a better position instead of everyone feeling like they've got to do it themselves. And I think that is what makes us a pretty dangerous side. So do you think we can go all the way? <laughs> I'm a superstitious type. I always used to put my left sock on before my right, so I'm not going to answer that. But uh, I'm very <laughs> excited about our run home. I think we've got some good challenges, and I think the other team's even though they're sitting above us on the ladder, um, Brisbane and Collingwood and West Coast, I think they're going to be a little bit worried about what the Tigers could do. Um, and finishing the top four and getting everyone back, I mean, it, it, it's been an interesting season. I mean, Geelong, we were chatting about this before. Geelong losing, you've got Brisbane are playing so well, but they're a young side. Do they get tired at the end of the year or does their enthusiasm just carry them through? 
there's just so many unknowns. Um, but I think the the one probably thing you can guarantee is the Tigers are going to be dangerous against anyone. So I'll be uh, I'll be keen to be watching from afar. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on to the show tonight, Daniel. Really appreciate your time and good luck with all the work you're doing overseas and uh, your study and all that kind of stuff. And we obviously hope to see you a bit more around the club when you're back in Melbourne. Thanks, mate. Yeah, over the next few years, I'll start to I probably should grow up. I'm 33 now, so mature and come back to Melbourne, but maybe a few more little trips in between, and then you'll see me plenty at the at the Richmond game as well. So you could, thanks uh, for having me on. You could take Brendan Gale's job once he's running the AFL. <laughs> I like my I like my weekends at the moment. You can work for a footy club. You go, I spent eleven years not having weekends. We'll see how we go. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. Thanks so much, Ian, for coming on. I appreciate it. Cheers, Chris. Thanks. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Richmond Big Footy Tiger Cast. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and YouTube so you can follow all the roast and toast, the reviews and previews, and all topics Richmond. Also keep an ear out for our special episodes of interviews with past players. Go Tigers!